Hello and welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson. Aaron Miller is traveling today and so I'm doing this News Roundup episode for the week solo as I've done a couple of times in the past already. That means I'll cover slightly more news items than we usually do when we have more of a back and forth between the two of us. So we're going to be covering five items today. We'll kick things off with what I think was the week's big news with Amazon's uh, somewhat quote-unquote surprise hardware event this week announcing new Echo devices and new Fire TV among other things. Uh, Secondly, I'll talk about Twitter's uh, also surprise decision to start testing a 280-character Twitter, uh, or rather tweet limit. Uh, Thirdly, I want to talk about a broader theme that emerged from several things that were announced or emerged this week, which is a combination of detente and escalation in the sort of conflict between various major tech ecosystems. So we'll talk about uh, Apple TV hardware going back on sale on Amazon.com, We'll talk about Apple putting Google back in as the search backend for Siri and other features on its devices, uh, and also talk about Google pulling the YouTube app from Amazon's Echo Show device. Fourth, I want to talk about Google Shopping Search in Europe and the latest developments on that front in the past week or so. And then lastly, I want to do a quick preview of next week's Google event, so not so much a news roundup as a news preview for next week, uh, which will be a busy week for hardware events. So kicking off with the Amazon news, I wrote about this in some depth this week for Tech Pinions, the audience. Uh, This is a free piece, my weekly column, which appears on Thursdays on Tech Pinion. So I'll link to that in the show show notes. Um, But uh, essentially, Amazon managed to embargo not only the news itself, but the fact that it was even holding an event this week, which is a somewhat unusual approach, but meant there was far less speculation than usual about what they might be announcing. And so... Uh, on the morning of the event this week, suddenly uh, lots of blogs said, hey, we're covering this event that Amazon's holding today. And then it ended up being a pretty packed event, which updated several elements of the Echo lineup, added a couple of new ones, added a couple of accessories, updated the Fire TV device as well. So a whole range of announcements from Amazon. And I saw a lot of the reaction to this seemed to be along the lines that Amazon was throwing stuff at the wall to see what would stick. And I I took a step back in my Tech Pinions column and other analysis that I did this week on this. My take is very different from that. This feels like a very deliberate maturing of the Echo product line in such a way that there's now a bit of more of a structure to it and uh, sort of a good, better, best approach to the core voice speaker line with the Echo Dot, the Echo, and what's now the Echo Plus, and even a sort of two-size sort of good, best approach to the voice speaker with a screen space now that there's the echo spot at the lower end and the echo show at the higher end there Um, you still have two more specialized devices in what's now called the amazon tap which is the sort of portable echo device and the echo look which is a really sort of niche device for fashionistas to be able to take pictures of themselves and get feedback from an ai in terms of how their outfit looks and so on but you also have accessories now and those new accessories are amazon uh, echo buttons Uh, which will allow families to play games and things using uh, an Echo device. And then there is a new device which will uh, act as a sort of go-between between between a landline phone line and uh, a voice control so that you can use it as a speaker phone using Alexa commands and that kind of thing. And really the theme to me, as I say, is maturity of the product line such that there's now a clearer sort of picture of which device you should buy for different use cases. You've got different price points for plain voice speakers and uh, speakers with screens and so on. You've got more specialized devices. And then with the accessories and with some of the new software features that have been added, 
Uh, Amazon's now also going after a wider set of use cases. And, and that's important because even though the Echo devices have already been somewhat popular, it's really within a narrow segment of the population. And that segment of the population's had a fairly small number of tasks for which they've mostly used these devices. So it's playing music, setting timers in the kitchen, that kind of thing, maybe getting a daily news briefing. You can control some smart home devices, but that's mostly had to work through the cloud so far. So Amazon's adding in a hub that's Zigbee capable, one of the major sort of communication technologies for smart home devices in the Echo Plus. It's also upgraded the audio uh, in the Echo and the new Echo Plus device so that these are slightly better speakers as well, so that the music side of things is slightly more compelling ahead of announcements from Sonos next week and Apple's rollout of HomePod later in the year. So really... We've got Amazon going after a wider set of use cases, as I say, broadening the addressable market for these devices, bringing the price points down as well for uh, speakers with screens, bringing the price of the Core Echo down from $150 to $100, really just doubling down on its massive commitment here. They announced they have 5,000 people working on Alexa and Echo at Amazon now. That's up from, I think, 1,000 in May of last year, so massive expansion over the past year. CNBC reported that they have 1,500 open positions advertised right now on their website to hire more people into that group. So huge investment there. Very difficult to compare that on a like-for-like basis to anybody else because not everybody else makes voice speakers today. uh, And the teams working on things like Siri and so on are spread out throughout organizations and, and perhaps working on other things as well. So hard to make comparisons, but it's very likely that's the biggest team working on this stuff out there. That's really indicative of Amazon's commitment to this space. But the pricing stuff that happened this week was another reminder that Amazon isn't necessarily planning to make lots of money from any of this hardware. Essentially, she's probably selling it at cost, maybe even at a loss in many cases, really to boost the Amazon ecosystem. That's a very similar play in some ways to what Roku is doing in the set-top box space. Roku, of course, had a very successful IPO this week. Its share price roughly doubling in the first two days of the IPO. Uh, so really a successful launch, but as I say, similar sort of business model of selling hardware at very low margins or even negative margins to boost an ecosystem. And that's really what Amazon's doing here very successfully, uh, preempting to some extent uh, Google's announcements around the smart speaker space next week with a much more comprehensive set of announcements. In the TV space, just briefly, the new Fire TV is cheaper than it's been before. It's smaller, so it can actually just hang off the back of a TV rather than if it's necessarily going to sit on a shelf somewhere. Uh, the 4K HDR capable, like Apple's recent Apple TV device, uh, makes the opposite trade-offs from a Dolby support perspective. So one of these devices supports the audio but not the video version of uh, Dolby special technology. Uh, the other one makes the opposite trade-off. Kind of a funny situation, and I would expect Apple at least to resolve that and support both of these through software in the next few months. Uh, but a whole range of announcements, as I say, from Amazon, really doubling down on this space, demonstrating its leadership here, and uh, addressing a wider segment of the market than before. So that kind of wraps up my my commentary on the Amazon Echo and other announcements this week. Secondly, I want to talk about Twitter's surprise announcement to test. Uh, increasing or doubling the character limit for tweets from 140 characters to 280 characters. This is not a new idea by any stretch of the imagination. It's something that's been floated by various people for years now as a way to sort of uh, open up Twitter to more people, to make it less restrictive, to let people communicate better and so on. And Twitter actually cited some interesting evidence in support of its decision this week, specifically talking about Japan, a market where the character set is very different from the Roman alphabet that we use in most Western countries. 
and allows much more condensed communication. So essentially, in Japanese characters, it's as if you have something like three to 400 characters uh, as a limit instead of 140, just because of uh, how dense those characters are in communication. Twitter points out that in Japan, people send more tweets, there's more usage, it's disproportionately high usage there, and argues uh, that that means that they'll see higher usage and so on in the US. There's really no evidence in what they said this week to suggest that that is the case, uh, absent other factors, which could well be cultural and so on. So within the US, there are big differences in how different ethnic groups, for example, use Twitter, but they're all using the same language, uh, certainly all using the same alphabet. And so there are clearly other factors at play in terms of who uses Twitter, who finds it compelling and so on, clearly aren't simply based on the character set. So I'd be very wary of drawing broad conclusions, as Twitter seems to have done from that Japanese experience. But the point is that Twitter is now testing a 280 character limit. They've done that by extending that capability to all Twitter employees, extending it to quite a few high profile external users of Twitter as well, without a ton of rhyme or reason. And certainly a lot of people who have large followings on Twitter who haven't received that new character limit. Um, and uh, there are various uh, clever ways to hack it so that you can start sending those tweets at 280 characters, regardless of whether you're not officially, uh, whether or not you officially have been added to Twitter's list there. Uh, but to take a step back for a second, I'm really in two minds about this. Mostly, I think I'm against the change. I'm a huge user of Twitter. I find great value in it. And one of the great things that I love about it is it's incredibly glanceable and scannable. Pretty much every tweet with 140 character limit, most of those uh, are, are actually shorter than 140 characters. But as you go through, scroll through a feed of, of tweets, which I do you know, throughout the day, uh, each tweet you can pretty much instantly get the gist and know roughly what it's getting at and decide whether it's worth reading you know, in detail and digging into in any way or whether you can kind of just scroll past it. There's something about 140 characters that's sort of just a little bit shorter than the traditional SMS message length uh, that makes it glanceable and scannable and makes for great scrolling through. And even just the small number of people who have the 280 character limit, their tweets showing up in my feed is, is really disruptive. You really have to stop and read those tweets uh, in full to get a sense of what they're about in a way that you don't have to with 140 character tweets. So I feel like this is going to break something fairly fundamental about Twitter and I'm uh, not looking forward to everybody getting this because I think it is going to change the platform fundamentally without, importantly, adding a lot of value. You could always do a two-part tweet. You could always add a block of text in some way to a tweet if you really had more to say. I've never been a huge fan of tweet storms. I think they're a poor use of the platform. I tend to avoid them myself. I think if you have more to say, post it somewhere else and link to it. Or uh, if you have to, attach a screenshot of a block of text if you need to add more. Uh, it feels like the implementation here is just basically more of the same. And I feel like, as I say, that's going to break the Twitter experience. I worry too that Twitter's doing this because it's run out of other ideas for how to improve the Twitter experience, make it more engaging, easier to use for new people, for example. And I don't think this is going to make a meaningful difference to that. I continue to maintain, this is something I've been saying for several years now, that the best and biggest single thing that Twitter could do to improve the experience is to move away from the single account following model for, for new customers especially and to move towards a topic-based following model so that they create algorithmic and in some cases human curated topical uh, streams that people can follow either permanently or temporarily 
So if you're a basketball fan, you don't have to decide which 150 individual basketball-related accounts to follow. You can get an algorithmic feed of the best tweets about either basketball in general or your specific team or a player that you really like or a set of players that you like. Uh, and Twitter should be doing that for every sport, every team in every sport. They should be doing that for major news topics so that you can follow, for example, right now, the situation in Puerto Rico. Read all the most relevant and interesting uh, and important tweets on that subject right now to be able to get a continuous handle on what's going on there, get insight into that and so on. That's something that Twitter's very, very good at when you have taken the time to really curate the set of accounts and so on that you want to follow. But that takes a lot of work. It takes months of adding and subtracting accounts and so on. And even then, you get a lot of noise uh, uh, along with your signal. And so the reality is Twitter has all the tools necessary to create an algorithmic timeline that's based on topics rather than individual accounts. Uh, and it needs to integrate that tightly into the sign-up and onboarding experience and then allow people to select that way of using Twitter going forward. That is the change that Twitter really needs to make. And I think this 280-character thing is a sign that they've kind of run out of ideas, that they're not willing to make bigger changes like that, and they're taking what's really architecturally a very simple choice to change the, the tweet limit, and in the process may well break the experience for many users without adding a ton of value. All right, well, number three, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, I want to talk about this sort of broader theme rather than one specific piece of news. There's really three pieces of news here this week. Uh, one is that Amazon, at least briefly, appeared to start selling Apple TV hardware again. This is uh, ex was expected as part of the sort of detente between Apple and Amazon, with Amazon producing a video app for the Apple TV. Amazon, in turn, then starting to sell Apple TV devices again on its site, something it stopped doing a couple of years ago, along with other competing devices like Google's Chromecasts. Uh, so that was one thing. The second thing was Apple uh, switching from Microsoft's Bing search engine to Google as a search engine in the back end of Siri. And what used to be called Spotlight Search is now just kind of called Search within iOS and Mac OS. Uh, this uh, is an area where... Uh, in the past, at least, it appeared to be one of the several threads in Apple's slow disengagement from Google, so kicking Maps off the platform, replacing it with Apple Maps, kicking YouTube off as a pre-installed app, for example, uh, moving away from Google as the back-end search for these functions and so on. Um, as I say, that's been reversed this week, and that's an interesting sign. And then the third one is something that moves in the opposite direction and involves two of the same companies I've just been talking about, and this was Google pulling the YouTube app from the Amazon Echo Show, which is the uh, voice speaker with a screen that Amazon has, where YouTube is one of the very few video properties that was available on the site, uh, on the device, and was a major part of the functionality, frankly. So if you searched for how to do this or that, YouTube videos would be one of the big things you'd get back in response to that. Uh, and you could ask to watch certain things on YouTube and it would show you. And so that and Prime Video were the two main video sources. Um, and YouTube going away is therefore a blow, certainly much more of a blow to have that missing from the Echo Show for Amazon than that is for Google, where this is a tiny, tiny channel uh, for YouTube relative to all the others that are already out there. But interesting sort of set of moves here. Some of them, companies moving towards each other, having been apart for some time. And in that last example, companies breaking apart as they increasingly compete. And of course, all three of these companies do continue to compete across multiple different dimensions. So Apple and Google, obviously the major players in the uh, smartphone uh, operating system world, uh, direct competitors now in phone hardware as well. 
um, and competing across a variety of other sort of content service type spaces to Amazon and Google competing perhaps even more aggressively uh, across a whole range of areas. So voice speakers, obviously, and that's a space that Apple's shortly going to be competing with both companies as well, uh, but also cloud services in the enterprise, shopping search where people can either start from Google if they're wanting to do a broad search, or in many cases, I think 55% of product searches now start on Amazon itself, bypassing Google so they compete there, they compete in the TV box space, as does Apple, and so on and so forth. And so these companies are constantly competing with each other. And yet, in the cases of Google and Amazon, they rely on iOS and the Apple platforms more broadly as important channels to market for video services, for, in Google's case, Google Search, Gmail, Google Maps, and so on, um, through the App Store. And so these are companies that are frenemies or uh, engage in co-opetition or whatever funny um, portmanteau word you want to use to describe this, but it's a complex set of relationships. And there's also a constant give and take in those relationships between uh, partnering and building for each other's platforms and holding back. And there have been some prominent examples already of Google and Amazon kind of holding back from each other. Amazon choosing not to participate for the most part in Google Shopping Search, for example, uh, also refusing to build Chromecast support into most of their video apps. So this is an ongoing thing. We're going to continue to see this. Uh, the, the theme in most of the coverage about all of this is this is bad for consumers. And I think it's hard to avoid that sense that, yes, this is bad for consumers. Uh, consumers end up suffering as a result of the competition and uh, aggressive behavior between these companies. Um, but at the same time, it's somewhat inevitable as an outgrowth of their strategies to compete with each other, despite the fact that they also rely on each other in many ways. The YouTube uh, poll from Echo Show this week was an interesting example because it kind of came out of the blue. Amazon continues to maintain that Google did that uh, without warning. Uh, Google, on the other hand, says that it uh, has been negotiating terms with Amazon for months and the YouTube app as currently instituted on the Echo Show uh, breaks some unspecified uh, term in the terms of service for YouTube. My guess is that it doesn't really allow somebody to really manage their account. Uh, it's a very limited YouTube experience, but I think that may well just be an excuse. One of the reasons for which, in reality, may be that Google's working on its own competitor, the Echo Show, and wants to put YouTube on that exclusively and shut it out from Amazon. That's now emerged as probably the most likely explanation for all of this. It's also possible there's a little quid pro quo for Amazon scheduling a big hardware event the week before Google's, which has been widely trailed and announced. Uh, Amazon keeping it, as I said, under wraps until just this week, and then preempting potentially some of what Google will announce next week, which I'll be talking about uh, in a minute. Um, I think that's about all I have to say on that subject for now, but it's certainly not going to go away as a topic, something that we're going to continue to see over the next few months. As I say, some detente in the relationship between Amazon and Apple around all of this, but ongoing competition, perhaps even strengthening competition between Google and Amazon across several of these fronts. I want to talk forth about Google Shopping Search and all that's gone on over the past week or two around that in Europe. Uh, the Google Shopping Search, of course, one of three areas which the European Commission has been investigating Google over on uh, competitive grounds, and the first on which it's uh, had formal sort of findings of fault and a fine and uh, a requirement to remedy the situation uh, for which the deadline uh, was Thursday this week. And so Google had filed privately with the European Commission its proposed solution to all of this, presumably talked to some of the companies that had filed the original complaints with the European Commission over this, which are mostly comparison shopping sites, and then began rolling out 
its proposed remedy this week as well. And so the proposed remedy could have been several things. We've kind of talked about that here on the podcast in the past. Uh, what it ended up being was that Google has now made the Google Shopping, what used to be the Google Shopping search, is now the shopping, uh, the comparison shopping function, if you like, within Google search results for certain products. And it will now be like any other ad slot within Google search results where uh, anybody who wants to be in that space can bid for the right to appear there. And uh, Google will have an auction for that as it does with other ad slots. Uh, at the same time, it will separate its Google Shopping team and business unit uh, in Europe from the rest of its search team so that it operates separately, has no special insights into uh, what's going on or what others might be bidding and so on. And it will now bid alongside those other companies. And so the outcome here for Google is it now doesn't have that space to itself. It also has to pay to appear in that space, which it obviously didn't have to in the past. That's an internal transfer payment. So at the end of the day, Google doesn't spend any cash doing that, but it means that the Google Shopping uh, function now has to have more of a direct P&L and decide whether uh, placement there is worthwhile to it. It does, of course, have special access to past information about what that placement has been worth to it and therefore has arguably unique and privileged information that will enable it to bid more effectively and efficiently for those slots than any of its competitors. And that's something I would expect its competitors to raise as an objection. Importantly, the European Commission hasn't approved Google's remedy here. It said that it wants to wait and see how it works as a remedy. Uh, the big problem with that, of course, is that if it's seen to be an insufficient solution, then Google would be subject to fines backdated to this past Thursday. Um, and going forward to whatever time it actually implements uh, what's considered an acceptable remedy. So Google in a bit of a tricky situation here where it's proposed a remedy, but it hasn't been officially approved yet. And we'll have to wait and see how that pans out. As a reminder, this is just, as I said at the beginning, just one of three fronts on which the European Commission has officially uh, got an investigation underway. The other two, the findings still to come. Uh, but early findings that there are issues that need to be addressed. We could well see big fines in those cases. We may well see similar remedies required in terms of separation of different parts of the business as it relates to Android and so on. Uh, we could also see the European Commission decide to add things like maps and news as similar categories where it says that Google needs to separate out its uh, various efforts and not bundle them in the way that it has in the past. So it could be significant implications for Google financially and in terms of how it runs its business in Europe still to come over the next few months as those various investigations progress and ultimately conclude. And then lastly, one other Google topic, and as I said at the beginning, this is a, just a quick preview of Google's event next week. That's happening in San Francisco on the 4th. That's the same day as Sonos is holding an event in New York. As it happens, I have long-standing plans to be in New York this coming week, so I will be there and will be attending that Sonos event. Uh, Google, though, will be having an event on the opposite side of the country. And this is sort of generation two of the first-party Google hardware. We saw the first generation launched around this time last year, with the first Pixel phones, with the Google Home, with Google Wi-Fi, and so on. And we're expecting more of the same next week. And so based on fairly extensive leaks and reports and rumors, things we're fairly sure will turn up next week is a, a Pixel 2, a Pixel 2 XL, a Pixel Book, which is a successor to the original Chromebook Pixel, a premium Chromebook. Um, we're going to see a Google Home Mini to compete uh, more directly against the Echo Dot from Amazon. We may also see uh, more headphones or earbuds or something that are Google Assistant capable. Bose has already announced uh, a version of its headphones that it supports the Google Assistant. We may see 
other Google Home type products. Uh, Google Home Max, a larger sort of premium audio version, is one thing that's been rumored. Uh, another one that was just rumored in the last couple of days, and somebody sent me some information about this reportedly based on conversations with Google employees saying that an Echo Show type device was in the works there as well. The timing on those last two items, the sort of premium audio and the screen-based voice speakers, is pretty uncertain at this point. We may see no sign of those next week. Uh, we may see them announced uh, ahead of time with an actual launch sometime next year. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see on those. With regard to the others, I think the key thing on the Pixel side is that last year's phones were pretty good phones. They had some interesting differentiators, among which was Google Assistant. I said at the time it was a mistake to restrict the Google Assistant to the Pixel because it was going to do far more harm than good. Um, but that was one of the unique features, and there were one or two others as well. Those phones obviously didn't sell well, and they were hampered significantly by uh, limited distribution here in the U.S., where Verizon was the only carrier to carry them, uh, fairly limited retail distribution, fairly limited supply as well. There were a number of models that were pretty hard to get hold of for quite some time. And then fairly limited marketing, and marketing that uh, was determined to go up against the iPhone, which is always a tough sell, rather than obviously going against the Android devices that it's much more likely to attract switches from, but which, of course, come from Google's partners and which it doesn't want to compete against directly. And so it needs to figure out not only how to create a really great couple of phones this year, and we have to see what the details are on those, but it needs to figure out distribution. It needs to figure out marketing, how to position these phones in such a way that they're kind of like the Microsoft Surface, where they attack a unique space in the market that nobody else is really going after. And this is mostly about if you want this kind of device, the Google Pixel phones are for you, rather than this is just like every other premium phone out there, uh, which is kind of how it's been positioned so far to some extent. So we'll have to see how that goes. I think the rest of the hardware is a lot less interesting, frankly, at this point, unless we see some big surprises. I don't expect a, a hardware update to the Google Home. There may be some software updates that are announced, but Google announced a lot of those at I.O. earlier this year, and they've been rolling out slowly throughout the course of the year. I would expect that to continue rather than have a lot of new software announcements for the Google Echo, for the Google Home. Um, aside from that, the Pixel Book uh, is, as I say, a successor to the original Chromebook Pixel. It's always been funny positioning for a Chromebook because it's a really premium device in a category that basically exists to create cheap computers to compete and undercut Windows. Um, and so it's always been an odd product. So I wouldn't expect that to be a big seller at all. Uh, and uh, headphones are interesting. Obviously, we've seen AirPods do very well uh, at Apple over the last nine to 10 months, um, albeit in short supply, so selling very well despite constrained supply. Um, Google Assistant hasn't taken off anything like the same way, partly because of ongoing limited distribution and availability uh, relative to Siri, which continues to be by far the widest deployed voice assistant out there. Uh, and that's going to limit the appeal of Google Assistant-based headphones, but it's a natural direction for them to go in, good complement to uh, Google Home and everything that it's doing there as well. So uh, I would expect, as I say, most of the focus, quite rightly, to be on the Pixel phones. I think that's by far the most interesting and important uh, member of the Google hardware line. Uh, there will probably be questions about the HTC team, but I don't expect to see a lot of answers to those next week. Uh, but I would guess that in next week's news roundup, we'll do something of a look back at that event and uh, digest it and kind of pull it apart for all of you then as well. So that wraps up this episode of the News Roundup with, as I say, a little news preview at the end there. Thanks very much for listening. There should be one or two uh, items in the show notes to link you to stuff that I've talked about today. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Bye-bye.